Hello, friends, and welcome to this week's edition of Truth to Power. Great to have you along here on Forward Radio WFMP Louisville. My name is Justin Mogg. I'm one of the volunteer programmers here at the station, and I'm thrilled to be hosting this week's edition of Truth to Power, where we have community conversations like you won't hear anywhere else on your radio dial. And the content of today's show is going to be truly something I really don't think you're going to hear anywhere else. It's about climate change, migration, and vulnerability to human trafficking. We're going to listen back to a presentation given on February 20th at the University of Louisville's 13th Annual Human Trafficking Awareness Conference. The focus of this year's conference was on climate change and migration. This is co-hosted by the University of Louisville's Women's Center and the PATH Coalition of Kentucky, People Against the Trafficking of Humans Coalition. Uh, and boy, our speaker on February 20th was quite informative. Uh, I, I never heard anything like the kinds of connections she makes between climate change and what it means in terms of a human impact and the impact on trafficking. So we're going to hear from Ritu Baradwaj. Uh, she's a principal researcher and team leader at the International Institute of Environment and Development. She works in their climate change group on the governance of risk. She's going to talk about what modern slavery is and, and how climate change is a driver of modern slavery. How is vulnerability to modern slavery linked to patterns of displacement and migration? Understanding the drivers of modern slavery in the context of climate change with case studies from South Asia and West Africa. And why should this issue be treated with urgency and what needs to be done to address it? You won't want to miss the rest of this. So stay tuned, my friends, here on Forward Radio's Truth to Power. And now we turn you back over to uh, a brief introduction from the University of Louisville's Women's Center from February 20th and their Human Trafficking Conference here on Truth to Power. Welcome. I am Jamika Jones. I'm a program coordinator here at the University of Louisville Women's Center. I want to welcome you virtually to the University of Louisville, but of course to our 13th Annual Human Trafficking Awareness Conference in partnership with People Against the Trafficking of Humans, Coalition of Kentucky. The inauguration of this conference began in 2010, led by students to raise awareness of human trafficking, to educate students in our greater community about this complex issue, and of course to encourage you to act because we are all a part of this. The focus of this year's conference is on climate change and migration's impact on human trafficking. So today's session, climate change, migration, and vulnerability to trafficking, will cover how the impact of climate change and environmental degradation and deepening inequality, driving migration and creating vulnerability to modern slavery, human trafficking and forced labor within borders and cross borders. So I would like to introduce our presenter today, Ritu Bhadraj, Principal Researcher and Team Leader, Governance of Risk Climate Change Group with International Institute of Environment and Development. She has more than 20 years of senior policy development, research and management experience in government, funding agencies, and international NGOs. She has worked extensively on climate resilience, resource conservation, social protection, migration, and gender issues. Over the years, her work has helped develop robust evidence-based research that has influenced policy framework and strategies for numerous institutions and organizations, including national governments, international development, and humanitarian organizations. 
Her experience spans across issues of climate change, disaster risk reduction, and migration, and how it interacts with climate-induced migration. She has a particular understanding on how to align development and social protection programs to prevent climate-induced displacement and distress migration. Having provided leadership on policy and program design, she is seen as an important resource in the think tank of several institutions, particularly with government agencies, where she has contributed to overall strategy, learning, and advocacy agendas. So please join me in welcoming her. Uh, Jamaica gave a very, very eloquent introduction about myself. I don't know whether I'm worthy of that, but I will start off by explaining what this topic is. So I don't know if many of you really know about climate change, this topic about what climate change is, what migration is, and what modern slavery is. So we typically link, so I'll start off by explaining each of this and how they intersect with each other. You know, we typically link this notion of slavery to colonial era. But if you look at those figures, you'll see that there are far more people which are, who are subject to slavery today than any other time in the history. And if any one of you have been following this trend of modern slavery, about five years back, this figure used to be somewhere around 40 million. So within a span of five years, this figure has gone up by 10 million. It's, it's really appalling. And for the first time, this global estimate for modern slavery has recognized climate change as a factor contributing to the increase in this modern slavery. So what modern slavery really is, it is often categorized as forced labor, bonded labor, debt bondage, sex trafficking. And in many cases, actually, they are interrelated and overlapping and constitute a continuum. So a person who would be in debt bondage may also be pushed into sex trafficking uh, or forced labor and so on. So there is an overlap between them. And what we have seen in the recent times is women, children, and migrant workers are far more vulnerable to being subjected to modern slavery than others. So, you know, you can see that people who are most marginalized are the ones who become most vulnerable or the weaker become more vulnerable to becoming victims of modern slavery and trafficking. But what is really crucial to understand here is that while several socio-economic, cultural, institutional, political factors, they shape this risk to becoming vulnerable to modern slavery, they're increasingly considered to be made worse by the climate change impacts and environmental degradation. And climate change and climate-induced migration is considered to be worsening the existing vulnerabilities to slavery. So I don't know how many of you follow the news, but most recently, the floods in Pakistan really uh, shortened the news, saying that almost one third of the country was flooded. So many of you may be hearing this word climate change for a very long time, but now climate change impacts are increasingly becoming more and more severe and worse. And we are seeing many of these climatic events become highly extreme. They're increasing in their intensity. The extremities are increasing. The frequency of these impacts are increasing. So I come from India and currently I am in the field right now doing a research on trafficking on a similar topic. And the same Bay of Bengal there, it used to receive one cyclone in two years. Now they are receiving two to three cyclones in a year. 
So they're hardly able to recover from one and then they are hit by another, then they are hit by another. So they're in this perpetual mode of recovery and rebuilding their lives. And you also have to understand, not from uh, US, United States perspective, uh, which is a developed country, which has resources to build back better fairly quickly. Many of these climatic impacts, they are far worse in the global south, especially in the least developed countries, where they already have a lot of development deficit. So they don't have proper infrastructure. They don't have roads. They don't have good institutions. Many of the least developed countries, if you look at the figures, about 70% of the least developed countries are also fragile and conflict affected. So their political systems are weak, their institutions are weak, and those who are already marginalized get more and more marginalized. And on top of that, when they are hit by climate change, their situation becomes much worse. So climate impacts are currently compounding the existing vulnerabilities, existing development deficit that these countries or communities are already facing. And that is what we call, in the climate change world, we call many of these communities and countries as reaching the limits of adaptation. So when limits of adaptation are reached, it leads to losses and damages. And a very simple example would be that many island countries, small island development countries, you would see they are now facing sea level rise. So when sea level rise is happening, you cannot undo that. Those sea levels are rising. For example, Indonesia, there are so many countries, Vanuatu, uh, Trinidad, Tobago, all these countries are going underwater. And as the sea levels are rising, communities have to leave their homes forever and they're displaced to a new areas. So when they lose their homes, when they lose their livelihoods, that leads to a sense of despair and vulnerability, and that exposes them. And, and in many cases, we call it as losses and damages, which are reached because of the limits of coping capacity, because there's nothing that you can do to undo those impacts. So to understand what really happened. So I don't know if many of you have heard this word loss and damage, but loss and damage has been there for like almost three decades. I myself work in the space of climate change. So in climate, under climate change, we have this annual negotiations uh, between the developed countries and developing countries on what action should be taken, how should developed countries uh, support the developing countries in dealing with the climate impacts, because you know climate impacts are happening because there's an issue of historical justice because the industrial revolution led to the increase in global warming. It's leading to increase in climate impact towards which many of these least developed countries have not contributed anything, but they are facing the impacts of climate change. So within this, this scope of climate justice, a lot of negotiation happens every year. We get together in November every year to understand how can developed countries support developing countries. But loss and damage has always been taken up as a compensatory justice because the, the low-lying countries, the small island development states, they have been demanding uh, compensation uh, within the framework of climate justice. But you've, so to understand what are the realities of these loss and damage and how does it really impact communities, we, we, did, um, uh, we did not follow the typical top-down approach like you will see many of these northern universities uh, go and conduct 
conduct um, research in the global south but quite often they don't understand the realities like so you have to undertake uh, innovative methodology so one of the innovative methodology that we adopted for uh, understanding the impact of loss and damage we have partnered with a consortium of least developed countries universities which we call as luck and we partnered with them we built their capacities like we provided them mentoring and hand holding support in terms of creating the awareness about what loss and damage really is and then helping them to then collect evidence and learnings on how communities which are exposed to these climate impacts are dealing with it how are climate change loss and damage compounding their existing vulnerabilities what are the gaps in the support that they receive in dealing with those impacts and what additional can be done to help them cope with those impacts that they are facing so we did this research in 12 geographies which covered africa pacific and many countries in south asia and the reason why we picked up these three different geographies like asia pacific and africa was to understand whether climate change loss and damage meant different things for different regions we also try to cover different types of climate impacts uh, like slow onset events such as sea level rise desertification salination and also rapid onset events like cyclones hurricanes tornadoes floods heat waves and we try to understand whether slow onset or rapid onset creates different type of impacts or does it lead to the same impact so when we started analyzing these research evidence that gen- got generated from 12 geographies facing different types of climate impacts like for example we also covered bhutan which has glacial lake outburst one thing which emerged as common across the 12 geographies irrespective of type of climate impacts that they were facing and that was forced displacement and distressed migration and we also saw that within those who were being displaced or those who were pushed into undertaking distress migration the ones which were the most poor and most marginalized were the ones who became most vulnerable to becoming victims of modern slavery and human trafficking so when people are exposed to these climatic impacts they become vulnerable to modern slavery and the evidence that we collected from these case studies we found that this nexus between climate change that forced displacement or distress migration and trafficking it that exists along at least three pathways firstly in context of sudden or extreme climatic events such as cyclones floods hurricanes as i mentioned before and that leads to forced displacement and i am using the word deliberately forced displacement of communities and very strong evidence exists indicating that human trafficking increases in the aftermath of such ins- incidences or events and there are many evidence on this for example in bangladesh we saw that the women uh, who were left widowed by cyclone sidr they were targeted by traffickers and driven into prostitution and hard labor you would typically see that when when people are pushed out because of these events and then they take refuge in those temporary relief camps and shelters you traffickers they hover around these relief camps and try to find out those who are most in despair and then target them uh, we also s- s- saw something similar in case of annual flooding in assam in northeast india where women and girls were forced into child slavery uh, um, and forced marriages to make and meet now that's the first pathway that in case of sudden onset 
We also saw this nexus to exist in case of slow onset events or disasters, for example, drought, desertification, sea level rise, and so on. So when drought occurs, what happens? It leads to crop loss, drinking water shortage, food insecurity. People don't have enough food to eat three times or two, two, two times a day. And situations like these, it pushes community dependent on natural resources like forestry, fishery, agriculture to undertake debt or pursue dangerous or risky migration opportunities or take both. And research, if you get a chance, do read that research from Cambodia, which is called Blood Bricks, which maps intricate detail of how farmers whose livelihoods have been undermined by climate change are forced into intergenerational bondage. And the life in these brick kilns, it's inhuman. You will not even be able to. I have myself worked so much in the brick kiln area. When you when you step into a brick kiln area, you're, you'll virtually feel as if your shoe is melting. It's so hot. And you'll see young girls, kids, and men and young women and girls working in those areas. You will feel as if it's inhuman to even allow them to be there for one day. Then the third pathway where we saw this nexus to exist was in case where climate events are combined with conflict and forced displacement. As I mentioned, 70% of the least developed countries are fragile and conflict affected. Now, this final pathway normally exists when forced displacement due to conflict is further precipitated by climatic events such as drought and famine-like condition. And these three circumstances or pathways, they can overlap or intersect. And in each of these circumstances, we saw that similar dynamics was driving vulnerability to trafficking. Firstly, climate change, it worsens the poverty and inequality and places people who are already in precarious conditions in positions where they reach their limits of coping capacity. And then they are exposed to trafficking. You know, it's between choosing between devil and deep sea. So if they stay back, they die of hunger or they either die of hunger or die of getting drowned in flood. Or so they many of them, they choose to, even if they know, because we have, we went and interviewed so many young girls and men who say that they do know that they could end up getting trafficked, but honestly, they don't have any choice. They move without bargaining power. And that's what leads them into situations where they end up either getting forced into debt bondage, forced labor, or a similar situation. And I'll just illustrate these three pathways with the help of three case studies. So this first case study is from Chitrakoot in India, where climate change is impacting the rain-fed agriculture or the forest-dependent livelihoods of the tribal indigenous community, which is called coal. And in absence of sustainable livelihood option, these coals, they are forced to migrate and work in stone mines in, as I said, similar to brick kiln in very inhuman, polluting and exploitative working condition. People working in these mines, they often come back with lung diseases due to constant inhaling of dust and polluted air. And you will see that many of them, they dry very early, like 35, 40 is sometimes their life expectancy. And for me, that's inhuman. And most of these migrants, they work on informal contracts and often they are engaged through middlemen, which means that they're exposed to exploitation and without any accidental or health coverage. And women who migrate along with men, 
and 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 they are typically sexually exploited by the local landowners and these mining industry contractors and in many cases the men migrate leaving their women behind women children and elderly behind and desperate because men when they migrate do, do they don't start earning and sending the money back home which means that women have to make their ends meet and feed their families and women often end up then taking debt from the local land loaners and face debt bondage which then lands them in the vicious cycle of uh, physical and sexual exploitation so this case study is from urichar and this is a place in bangladesh which is exposed to coastal erosion so within urichar every family that we covered in our research was displaced at least minimum 3 times to a maximum of 7 times like even there was a shopkeeper who said that i was rich at one time but every time i was forced to get displaced my resources depleted and now i have nothing left with me and families who see their land eroding they typically rush to marry off their daughters before they displace and that results in child marriages especially for poor and socially marginalized they are permanently displaced to urban locations and they are forced to work under exploitative conditions women they are typically when they move to new settlements they are exposed to gender based violence sexual violence sexual exploitation abuse early child marriages trafficking like this was rampant in this case study area now the third case study where i wanted to explain how conflict uh, intersects with climate and migration and then vulnerability to trafficking and modern slavery many of you may know of this ill famous kidnapping of school girls by boko haram and typically one would say that you know the conflict must have pushed people out of the lake chad basin but you know people within this lake chad basin were first displaced because of climate impact so as lake chad basin started to shrink people started getting displaced and started moving closer and closer to the uh, to the water as the lake started shrinking and climate change combined with conflict has resulted in more than 5 million people being displaced both internally as well as across the border of niger and nigeria and these multiple internal displacements and livelihood loss due to climate impacts they are particularly acute on women and girls who are forced to take up jobs with exploitative working condition you know purely for economic survival and that exposes them to gender based violence but it's not just in this case you know in most of our other case study areas also we saw similar situation and men and boys because of their loss of home and livelihood that leads to further frustration and that makes them more vulnerable to becoming radicalized by the ideologies of boko haram so in terms of understanding the extent to which slow and sudden onset creates vulnerability to slavery what are the underlying drivers sorry to interrupt we have two questions okay one is how do the people that i'm assuming that are the most vulnerable from the population you describe how do they get educated or get information about human trafficking if they do typically they don't get educated many of the times for example you know they don't even know it's human they know that they were unlucky and that's why they got trapped in a situation like that and sometimes they get rescued and they bro- get brought back you know there are small grassroots level ngos 
civil society and in some countries government programs that try to rehabilitate and put them back in the society but in many cases even like they do get socially ostracized especially young girls and women they don't get reintegrated into the community and off late especially in places like nepal bangladesh india we've seen many grassroots level civil society organization they try to raise awareness within the community that if somebody is coming to you with offers like that not to take it up but the reality is also true because uh, as i said if they get displaced they know their their lands has destroyed their houses are destroyed they can't go back to their own home anymore or even if they go back home they can't bring back their lives on track in those situation what happens is somebody comes to them or these traffickers uh, come to them and tell them oh i have a job for you then even if they know that there is risk involved they take it up so despite that awareness because it's a question of survival and feeding their families quite often they do take up that job because you will see how they narrate their stories some they are like active voices which tell you why and how even if they are aware that this is trafficking or this could lead them into trafficking situation or by taking this loan i will become uh, a bonded laborer and uh, i will be pushed into debt bondage but they still take it so that's the reason why we need to create awareness that this nexus exists among the government and what we really need to support these families to support these individuals who are particularly vulnerable to trafficking and what are the drivers and how we can deal with some of those drivers of trafficking in climate change context and the second question is what if anything could be done to slow the process yes there's a lot that can be done especially as i said right in the beginning you know climate change does not occur in isolation the people who are exposed to these vulnerabilities to getting trafficked or being pushed into modern slavery they are the ones who are also poor who are also marginalized and they occur in countries which do not have social protection system those countries are already poor they are limited resources so what is really needed is one as i said within the framework of climate justice because these countries and these communities have done least to cause climate change they have not contributed to global warming but they are the ones who are facing the impact and i'll explain why it is different so last year germany also faced a very devastating flood and pakistan also faced devastating flood many people died in germany many houses were lost and there was a loss a lot of loss and damage but germany being a developed country because they had resources they not just built back the lives of those who were impacted by it they built it back better now they are more prepared to deal with that climate impact next year whereas in pakistan everything was destroyed those people who lost their lives their livelihoods the loss of their uh, agricultural crop they are never going to get their lives back on track so people who were above poverty are probably pulled back into poverty all those sustainable development goals that we worked so hard in bringing uh, women to school educating them bringing them above the poverty line all that in one climatic impact and everything comes down so that's why we need to protect people from falling back into that below that line either poverty or education so 
we don't have to derail that development trajectory that we have. And for, for that climate crisis, especially when it occurs in conjuncture with all those other development deficits that communities and countries are facing, you need to provide them social safety net. For example, if there is a household or a family which is exposed to flooding or sea level rise, they should be guaranteed basic minimum shelter, food security, health coverage, education coverage for their children in the event of any crisis, particularly climate crisis. And that should be rights-based. That people who are exposed to this, if there is a household whose land has gone underwater because of sea level rise, that household should have the right to demand for a house in some other location and should at least, while that family is facing crisis, should at least get access to food so they don't die of hunger. And when these safety nets are not provided to them, then they get exposed. Then in despair, they pick up any, they, they get hold of whatever anyone is offering, they take up that job or they incur debt and then land up in modern slavery-like situation. So, you know, in order to understand, you know, and I'll explain why we picked up slow onset and rapid onset areas separately in order to understand the drivers of trafficking in climate change context. And I like explain that as I show the results. So to understand the drivers of climate-induced trafficking and migration, we picked up two locations in India. So one was slow onset area, which also was facing conflict in Palamu in Jharkhand. And for sudden onset, we picked up Kendrapada district in Odisha. So yeah, just to explain, because many of you may not be familiar with these two geographies, Palamu experiences severe drought. And this area, you have to understand, was is quite densely forested. Yet, because of climate impact, they are now facing water scarcity, water crisis, and they are experiencing more, like more frequent and more severe drought in this area. Then in Kendrapada is an area which is exposed to sea level rise, which is exposed to cyclones. And when cyclone occurs, it also brings flood. So when seawater comes inland, it salinates the agricultural land. So not just their crop is destroyed, but that agricultural land is destroyed forever in many areas. Because the soil becomes salinated, you can't grow crops in those areas anymore. Many places, it gets sand-casted. So the same area gets sand-casted, so you can't grow the same vegetables or crops that you could take there earlier. So we try to understand to what extent climate impacts are creating distress for communities. Then we also try to understand that when these events occur, what are the kind of loss and damage that communities suffer? And you can see on the slide, like in terms of loss and damage to crop, loss and damage to livestock, loss and damage to material and infrastructure. But you'll also see that Kendrapada, which experiences floods and cyclones, the percentage of loss and damage is much higher because that's a sudden onset. There's a cyclone, there's a flood. So their houses get destroyed. There's mortality of their livestock and so on. Whereas in case of slow onset, like drought, you will see the loss and damage is not to that extent. There is loss and damage still. There's also another term that you will, people who are familiar with climate change area, these are loss and damage that can be monetized. And we call them economic loss and damage. So you can typically monetize the value of crop lost, monetize the value of livestock that they had, 
or the, the cost of the houses that got damaged or lost. But when people suffer loss and damage, there are a lot of non-economic loss and damage that also occurs. And I'll explain that later on. So how are people really experiencing climate impact? So in Kendrapada, that, uh, which, was, which is a coastal area experiencing uh, floods and cyclone, we saw that there were a lot of refugees within our study area, research area. And if you go and talk to any of these government authorities and you tell them that there is a sea level rise, what are you doing? And they say, oh, there's no sea level rise happening in India. But actually, there are seven villages which has already has gone underwater, and they call it Sat Bhaiya in local term. Seven villages have already gone underwater. These people have moved to where we are, we are conducting our research. And they were saying that they'll have to move again because the sea used to be two and a half kilometers away about four years back, and now it's just barely one kilometer away. So these people who already lost their houses, their land and everything are being pushed to move again. Similarly, in Palamu, as I said, there is loss and damage because of food and water insecurity, and that leads to distress migration. And in, in both the cases, in both Palamu and in Kendrapada, we saw that almost 85% of the households, they undertook distress migration. What happens? So, you know, so we also try to understand what are the drivers of distress migration. And, and in that context, to what extent does marginalization, uh, to what extent does lack of social protection, and to what extent does loss and damage drive distress migration? And I'm using the word distress and not migration per se. Migration, a lot of households undertake as opportunistic migration. So if you see in many of these developing countries, people are essentially dependent on natural resources for their livelihood. So that depend, when I say natural resources for their livelihood, it means dependent on agriculture, forestry, fishery. And by the very nature, these livelihoods or these jobs are part-time. They are not full-time. Mm. They are seasonal in nature. So crops, you can't grow crops throughout the year. So in many, of, and especially in these areas, in many of these developing countries, they don't have irrigation facilities. So they're dependent on rainfall for growing their crops. So by the very nature, it becomes seasonal. In, 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 it becomes seasonal. So they don't have livelihood throughout the year. And in many areas like these, migration is a common phenomenon. It used to happen, it's been happening there for decades. People do migrate. But they migrate in off-season when or agriculture lean period. But right now what's happening is earlier it was a migration for opportunity, migration for better earning. And then it used to be more informed migration. Uh, it wasn't undertaken under distress, so they had a better bargaining power. Now because they are undertaking distress migration, why? Because their crops are lost, their houses are destroyed. And they probably took loan or from a local money lender to, to buy seeds to sow the crop. Now, because the crop is destroyed, he or she, they cannot repay the loan, which means they have to undertake distress migration, earn something so that they can come back and repay the debt. Otherwise, then they'll become debt bondage. So, like, as I said, there is devil and deep sea. They have to, that's the situation where, in which most of these people who we interviewed or where we conducted research found themselves in. They said, we, we kept telling them that you know that these are risky. And they said, they, yes, but we still have to undertake. Otherwise, how do we feed our families? 
So we saw that because when loss and damage occurs, so we conducted regression analysis based on people's feedback or what they said. And we saw that in case of loss and damage caused by extreme climatic events, it increased the odds of migration by 678. So it was quite high compared in, in rapid onset compared to slow onset. But also access to social protection was a major driver because typically in India, the government runs job security programs. So as I said, agriculture, lean period, the government opens up job like wage labor job for people to undertake those jobs uh, when they don't have any other option of livelihood and every household is entitled to demanding 100 days of that employment and if they don't get those 100 days of employment even after demanding they're entitled to unemployment allowance but not everybody had that job card which meant and especially those people who were refugees who came from those villages which went underwater, which meant that where they moved, the local panchayats, the local authorities, they did not recognize them as their residents and therefore they did not have those cards. Similarly, shortage of food because again, government runs these food subsidy program and especially for the poorer families, they get a ration card and on the basis of that ration card, they can actually get access to subsidized food grain. So the people who did not have access to those cards, that increased their odds of migration. And similarly, for every one rupee decrease in their monthly income, the odds of migration increased. So if they had job security, if they had food security, if they had sustained monthly income, then they would not have undertaken distress migration. And the biggest startling fact that came out was marginalization was considered as a big, big driver. We saw that marginalization was a big driver. So people who, like in India, we do have uh, caste systems. So uh, like socially, they have, there are some dominant castes. There are some underdeveloped castes, like people who have traditionally never been brought into the societal mainstream. And they are typically referred to as scheduled caste and scheduled tribe. We saw that households belonging to these castes were more vulnerable to being trafficked. So we also tried to understand the prevalence of uh, trafficking. So within those who were migrating, who within them were ending up being trafficked or becoming victims of modern slavery? So we found that the kind of slavery or trafficking instances that occurred was mostly in the form of debt migrants, like they had taken debt. They moved with the middlemen. So unless they repaid, like they had to, they were continuing being forced to work and they were at the mercy of the middlemen who had given them the debt. In the form of bonded labor, forced labor, debt bondage, wage withholding, exploitative working condition, child trafficking, sex trafficking. So these are the kind of slavery and trafficking instances that we saw. The most startling fact and here I would really want to, you to take notice of this fact was in case of slow onset, the area which was impacted by drought, the trafficking was 42% or like 42% of the total migrants were victims of trafficking and modern slavery. And in case of rapid onset, it was 16%. I'm not saying 16% is low. 16% is also a very high number. But 42%, like almost more than two and a half times higher than rapid onset, that's an eye-opener for us. In fact, when the figures started coming in, 
I thought there was something wrong with this. Uh, and I thought that probably the data wasn't collected right. And there was something wrong with them. So I myself spent almost a month time in the field there trying to understand the situation. And to my utter like horror, this was true. The trafficking percentage was really high in Palamo. And the reason for that, that we understood was, one, in case of rapid onset, you see, if you have a typhoon or hurricane in U.S., you see every newspaper covering that news. Similarly, in many of these developing countries or least developed countries, you will see if there is a cyclone, if there is a flood, like just see Pakistan floods, every newspaper, international newspaper also covered that news. But when there is a sea level rise or a drought, it does not get covered anywhere. So what happens is, if it does not get covered by media, there is no hype around it. Nobody goes to support those people. So in case of Kendrapada, we saw that whenever there was a cyclone or a flooding incident, it got covered in media, which meant that relief, rescue, humanitarian aid started flowing into those areas. So at least they had some support. Maybe, you know, I'm not saying almost everybody got supported through that relief and humanitarian assistance, but some got. And that's the reason why it came down. It was slightly less compared to Palamu, which was drought. You know, you most of the droughts, there's no drought early warning system. At least in case of flood and cyclone, there's a flood and cyclone early warning system. In case of drought, there is no early warning system, which means no humanitarian assistance or aid reaches them. And it almost acts like a slow poison for them. The worst was in the slow onset area in Palamo, especially girls and children were the most vulnerable. We found them to be the, the biggest uh, percentage of those getting trafficked and pushed into um, modern slavery. And especially children in the age of 11 and 16, they were taken to work as domestic help. And those who were taken for domestic help were the ones who were fortunate. The others were sold for marriage and prostitution and so on. So that was, for me, much more horrific than the others. So we tried to understand what are the drivers. Like, if you just look at that 16% trafficking percentage figure of Kendrapada. Now, one thing to note here, we figured out that there were at least five different types of drivers at the heart of it. But before I start talking about Kendrapada, you have to understand that Kendrapada was once extremely prosperous area, very economically prosperous. And this is a glaring example of how climate change can make even the most prosperous economies into drive them into situations where they become uh, so fragile uh, economically, but also ecologically and in, in so many other ways. So because this used to be once economically prosperous area, we saw that the social drivers were good. Um, majority of these, the area was covered by dominant castes. They were not scheduled caste and scheduled tribe. The demographic driver was also like, as I said, they had better literacy. They had better awareness about their entitlements. Of course, hunger was there within the most vulnerable households. But at least there was some level of literacy and awareness about their entitlements. And probably that's the reason why the trafficking percentage was a little low. 
then again, climate drivers was high because they had no control over it. The agriculture was becoming impacted. Fishery was going down and so on. Then in terms of infrastructure, we saw they had better infrastructure facilities because that used to be once a prosperous area. But again, social protection was insufficient or sometimes unavailable. When I say social protection, it is all about food security. It's about livelihood security in terms of those job cards or even in terms of health benefit access, education for their children and so on. But despite all these drivers, around 16% of them are ending up getting trafficked. Now, if you compare some of those factors with the social driver, it was essentially the dominant caste in terms of social driver. So, But in this case, it was mostly scheduled people belonging to the marginalized communities who, which were being oppressed by the dominant caste families. There was a lot of land grabs by dominant caste families. Then in terms of demographic driver, people had better literacy level. They had better awareness. But here there, there was lack of education. There was very poor awareness about the entitlement. The access to food subsidy was very low. So we found that people reported that they didn't even have two square meals a day. And that's why, like in many families, we saw that if they had four children, they actually deliberately let one of the children get trafficked. Like they knew that they were going to be in situation which would not be good. But they said that sending one child would at least feed the rest of the family. That's the kind of situation that many of these families are being pushed into. And the reason why we saw that out of the total migrants, uh, majority were women and girls. Like those who were trafficked were women and girls. And out of the total migrant, 42% was exposed to trafficking. So yes, situation is very gloomy, but we still can do a lot to protect many of these families, individual women, girls, children, who are being pushed into these situations on a daily basis. So basically, what can we do? So we need to take action especially communities which are exposed to climate and crisis, they need, and, and when I say not just climate, even other crises, because I said climate compounds other crises. Therefore, they need support before migration. For example, if their agriculture crops is destroyed, if their houses are destroyed, even before they reach a decision that now I have got nothing left and now I need to migrate or to feed my family, or there's, there's no livelihood opportunity available at the village level. Even before that family reaches that situation, they need to be protected. They need to be provided social safety net so that they don't undertake that risky migration opportunity. And even if once they decide to move, they need support during migration to protect them en route because many of these people, they get traffic en route like when where they get targeted by those traffickers. And finally, once they reach their destination, they need support after migration to protect them from exploitation, to protect their rights and entitlements wherever they are working so that they don't end up inhaling dust and fumes and come back with loads of diseases. So I'll just explain, unpack some of these actions that we need before, during, and after. So before migration, typically we need a comprehensive social protection system. So you go and talk to many of these government agencies and you tell them, and they say, yeah, yeah, we have provided them health support or we have provided them food subsidy. But these families need comprehensive support. They just don't need one support. They need an 
overall protection. A household whose lives have been destroyed, who have been uprooted from their homes, who, whose agriculture or crop has been destroyed. You can't just say, okay, you know, we are providing you this temporary shelter in this relief camp. They need much more than that. They need a comprehensive social protection. And that has to be rights-based. Uh, that has to be anticipatory in nature. So there has to be early warning systems before a drought or a flood or a cyclone occurs and provide them support before that in terms of monetary, in terms of social protection, information systems like early warning system. And in some cases, some places would be rendered uninhabitable. So places which are facing sea level rise, you can't do anything to keep people in those locations because those areas would go underwater. But if we know that situation like that is going to occur somewhere, we have to make people ready for migration. We have to probably build their skills so that they can get employed in another area wherever they are moving to, map the job demand in those areas, try to build their skills beforehand so that when they reach those places, they can get decent jobs, their rights and entitlements are protected. And wherever such forced displacement, like, for example, sea level rise or salination of agricultural land and so on happens, we should engage community in planning of those displacement. Because in many places, we have seen that the government does take all these actions. They do relocate households or families from one area to another. But quite often, they don't engage communities in those decision-making process. So community does not get the same support in the new destination sites. And in many cases, those relocation programs, they never succeed. So during migration, what do people typically need? They need a migration advisory or helpline services. For example, in India, we are working with an organization called FIA Foundation, which have developed these helpline services. And I can't tell you how useful it has become for the migrants. Just like, you know, you, you must see those embassies. Like if you are in any trouble, you always go to your own embassy. For example, I'm an Indian. I'm living in UK. If I have any issues, I'll go to the Indian embassy in UK and seek help. These migrants, they don't have any such embassy. They have nowhere to go. But these migration helpline actually almost working like an embassy for them, where they can go and then they can report that. And, and in many cases, they have called for support to be rescued from traffickers, to be rescued from bonded labor-like situation, and, and so on. And the way it works is by creating a network of non-governmental organizations which can support migrants en route, like in terms of providing them food, shelter, temporary housing, as they're moving towards their destination site. Now, this is about providing support after migration has happened so that communities get supported at the destination site. And you have to understand that when communities move in a new area, typically they don't have any support system. And, and in many cases, the host, the people who are already living in those areas, they don't like those people coming into their area because they feel as if that would create competition for the resources that they have. So we really need to make people choose migration as an opportunity and not as a distress. We need to create a social assistance system. So those social safety net, wherever they move, it moves with them so that they are protected. And, and especially those social protection mechanism has to be implemented in conjunction with the labor market reform. So wherever these people are working, 
they should be protected by the labor market regulation so that they are not subjected to inhuman, unhygienic or polluting working environment. So why do we really need to take this issue with urgency? So the latest IPCC report has also noted that the greatest single impact of climate change could be human migration. And like a lot of numbers, if you look at them, a lot of numbers have been placed on the kind of migration that we can expect because of climate change in different geographies like uh, in sub-Saharan Africa, East Asia, Pacific, South Asia, and so on. And most recently, the World Bank put the number as 216 million by 2050, but they're only capturing the internal migration, that is the migration happening within the country. The cross-border migration is going to be, right now, it's not that high, but it is going to increase. But the real issue is, the problem right now is that of time, because the speed at which climate change is occurring, and also because of the scale, because the number of people it is impacting. That simplistic image that you have, like, you know, you pack your bag, you go into a new area, you check into a hotel and stay there while the crisis subsides, and then you can go back. That does not happen in the real world. And international community really has to face up to this prospect of large-scale displacement because of climate change, uh, because there's certain level of climate change uh, which is already locked in, because we know the global warming is there, and it's increasing every day. And because it is locked in, many of that sea level rise, increase in the intensity and frequency of the climate impact, it is going to be there. But how much will depend on the international community's effort to deal with that impact? So we have to to deal with this nexus. We'll have to probably act on many fronts. Uh, and, and that would that is something uh, we'll have to act on climate change mitigation. We have to reduce global warming. But we also have to make sure that the people who are pushed into distress migration are supported. If they are not supported, then that would lead to modern slavery and trafficking. So I'll stop there, and I'm sure you would have other questions. So we have one there saying, if you know, has any other studies been done reference to victims of human trafficking in other countries, and they come to the U.S. as refugees, it seems their vulnerabilities would be similar. You know, very recently, uh, about two weeks back, uh, the U.S. government's uh, trafficking in person office, they organized a learning session for their own staff members. And uh, and surprisingly, there's not much research out there on this topic. Um, along with IAED, Anti-Slavery International, there are some other organizations also which are doing research. For example, Windrock is doing research. There's Rights Lab, which is doing some research in this topic. But the problem is most of these research is quite localized in, in a few geographies. So uh, like... I felt a little bad about that because most of the research was being done in Bangladesh. And that's why I said that there was too much of honeypotting, like everyone was thronging there for research. Whereas right now, the limited funding that we have in this space, because there's not much awareness, this is not a priority for many policymakers, many funding agencies. Therefore, we have very limited fund available for research into exploring this nexus and really taking this issue up in the international discourse so that something gets done on this issue. But most of the research, because it's very localized, we are not seeing too much of evidence, but we covered about 12 geographies. And one thing that really, like even IOM and World Bank or IPCC 
right now they are not recognizing the cross border migration like they are recognizing but they are not seeing it as an at an alarming rate but whereas our case studies our research from the ground and that's why we call it bottom up evidence that clearly shows that cross border migration is getting rampant you will see people crossing english channel especially in europe and and so on and and it's increasing and right now we haven't got too many numbers around that but you will see that many of these cross border migration would increase and us would also face um uh, like somebody mentioned to me that um if you look at the mexico border many of these uh, migrants that they are quite seasonal in nature and if you track the the seasonality of these uh, immigrants that that's that coincides with the seasons when they lose their agriculture or livelihood uh, so more research obviously needs to be done to understand how many of these migrant flows into us is creating vulnerability to trafficking but you know you have to understand that people who want to move like the typical example that we saw in bangladesh nepal india people who get displaced you seen that people get displaced or even lake chad basin if you see in that area people undertake multiple displacement because of climate impact because they think situation would improve or this is a crisis for one year next year the drought would not occur but it keeps occurring and so they keep getting displaced and we saw that there was a trend when people once got displaced once or twice then they want to move further away like the third or the fourth displacement that they undertake they want to move as far away from that area so that they don't get impacted by the same issue again and that's the reason why we seeing a lot of cross border migration happening because now people want to move into developed countries so that they think at least we'll have a better life here or our children will have a better life here and that pushes them into undertaking that illegal migration route and that lands them in trafficking like situation it's slowly starting to get attention but clearly nowhere near enough attention that is needed and you know we have you know all these climate disasters happening here we had flooding here in Kentucky and you know and in hurricanes across the country tornadoes and and really the big key takeaway is well yes obviously you know folks are needing the basic needs of food and water we need to also be thinking about the additional vulnerabilities such as being potentially trafficked when we are providing aid and needs to these folks but if you guys have have any other questions i would like to thank ritu for presenting this amazing research that she's continuing to work on so please join me in thanking her for her expertise and time with us today and enjoy the rest of your day And that is how things wrapped up on February 20th during the first session of the 13th annual Human Trafficking Awareness Conference held at the University of Louisville, co-hosted by their Women's Center and the Path Coalition of Kentucky. The theme of this year's conference was Climate Change and Migration. Uh, we were so delighted to share with you the thoughts reflections and research of Ritu Bharadwaj from the International Institute of Environment and Development hope you enjoyed this special edition of truth to power we look forward to being back in your ears again next week my friends